following Jesus is an ongoing journey to greater levels of understanding of Christ and commitment, dedication to Him. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Well, I want to start our message off here today with a warning and an apology. I started off warning you last week that some of you might not like some of the things I was going to say. But I have another warning for you this week. But not to worry, this time the warning is not that you might not like something I say, although that is always a danger whenever the Word of God is preached, right? But no, this warning today is that when you see the sermon title pop up, you might have a song come into your head and get stuck there, an earworm as it is called. So I want to warn you about that, and I want to apologize to you in advance for that if that happens to you. So we are continuing here then today in our series Unique, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ, going through a harmony of the Gospels and putting together all of the Gospel accounts of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ into one flowing chronological account. And for today, then, we're moving on into Matthew 16, Mark 8, and Luke 9. And there we will see how I can see clearly now. I can see clearly now. Now, how many of you folks of a certain age remember a 1972 song by Johnny Nash called I Can See Clearly Now, right? Remember that? It's in your head. It's in your head right now, right? I can see clearly now. The rain has gone. I can see all the obstacles in my way. Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind. It's going to be a bright, bright, sunshining day. It's going to be a bright, bright, sunshining day, right? Okay, how many of you now are going to have that song stuck in your head? And I wanted to say, you're welcome. You're welcome. But that said, here is the key idea that I want us to take away from today's message, is that following Jesus is an ongoing journey to greater levels of understanding and commitment. Following Jesus is an ongoing journey to greater levels of understanding of Christ and commitment, dedication to him then. So before we look at our text here then, a little context. First off, we saw how Jesus had fed the 5,000. There were controversies then with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, how Jesus had withdrawn then from them and had a ministry to the Gentiles along the Mediterranean coast and in the Decapolis, where there he fed 4,000. And Jesus then warned, we saw last time, he warned the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is influences. And he said, beware of the influences of the Pharisees, their corrupt doctrine and practice. And in so doing here, we see then now how the disciples' understanding of Jesus, who he was, and the significance of his mission, what he had come to do, was only gradually dawning upon them. When Jesus first called his disciples, they did not fully understand who he was or what he had come to do. They all had preconceived ideas and notions as well. 
that they brought into this as they began to follow him. But over time then, their eyes are being gradually opened and they understand more and better who Jesus is and why he came, what he was going to do then. So let's look then in uh, our first text. Our first text is, text is found in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, verses 20 through, 22 through 26. There we're told, Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him, and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. And then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. So here we see this miracle of Jesus healing this blind man, opening his eyes that he might see, but it was a little different from how he normally did it. It was a process in which Jesus gradually opened his eyes. He gradually opened physical eyes. You know, this particular miracle of this is recorded only in the Gospel of Mark. And it is different, too, from others in that it is the only recorded two-stage miracle which Jesus performed. What do I mean by a two-stage miracle? Now, usually when Jesus would heal, what? He would give the word, he would touch them, and what would happen? They were healed, right? But not in this case. It took a little time. It was gradual here, and it kind of came in stages. I wonder, well, why is that? Was it because of a lack of power on Jesus' part? No, obviously it was very deliberate. And you might ask, well... Could Jesus perhaps be sending a message through this and how he did it? And I think the answer to that is yes, he was. Obviously, he could have just instantly healed him as he had so many others, but he didn't do it. And I think the reason for that is this, is that this miracle was physically depicting something that was spiritually happening among his disciples and in fact happens among many of us even today that this miracle depicts the correct but incomplete understanding that the disciples had more on that to come but it's showing a process of gradually understanding you see, restoring sight to blind is a metaphor in the scriptures too. It's a, it's a literal miracle, but through it, there's a message that's being sent about sight is what? Is understanding, spiritual insight and understanding. So we might ask too, why did Jesus take the man outside the village? Well, I think it was probably to establish a one-on-one relationship with him. There and to avoid publicity. Now, in general, Jesus' miracles were public events, but there were exceptions. And it may be the case here 
that we are being shown that a true understanding of Jesus comes through a personal relationship with him apart from the crowd's opinions. I wonder, too, why did he, why did he touch his eyes? Why did he put saliva on his eyes and touch, his, touch him? Why did he do that? Did Jesus need to do that? No, he didn't need to do that. But I think in doing so, he was conveying his intentions to the man and stimulating the blind man's faith. And at first, the healing was only partial, right? He looked up and he could see something. He couldn't see it all before. Now he could see something, but what does he see? He sees people, they're moving and they're blurry. They, they look like trees walking about. And Jesus asked him if he saw anything, I think indicating that this was intentional on his part. And it was actually a fitting follow-up to his earlier rebuke of the disciples for their failure to understand, for their failure to see clearly. So the man was no longer blind, but his sight was still poor. And how like him were the disciples? That Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes again. And now the man's sight was restored and he saw everyone clearly. He could see clearly now. The rain was gone and it was going to be a bright, bright sunshine. Sorry, I couldn't resist myself, right? But now he could see clearly. And this was the outcome, I think, that the disciples could anticipate despite difficulties in the process. So we go on from there. We see now Jesus and his disciples came into the region of the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they answered and said, Some say John the Baptist, but some say Elijah. And others say Jeremiah, or that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly warned and commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So we saw how Jesus gradually opened physical eyes. And now we read of how he gradually opened spiritual eyes. See, Jesus and the disciples had left Bethsaida. They traveled about 30 miles north to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And here then Jesus questions them about their faith 
in him. He asks, what are the people, what are the people saying? Who am I? And their replies were all flattering for people who are identifying Jesus with John the Baptist, with Elijah, with Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But all of these answers were wrong. He said, but who do you say that I am? And speaking for the disciples then, Peter famously replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. As the Christ, he is the what? He is the Messiah. Messiah and Christ are the same word. Well, not the same word, but they're the same thing, right? Messiah, the Old Testament term, the deliverer. Christ, the New Testament word, the deliverer, the anointed one. You are the Christ, the Messiah. In you, in him, are fulfilled all the promises of God to the nation. But he's more. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And as the Old Testament prophesied, Messiah is more than a human being. He's God. And Peter then just thus acknowledges Jesus' deity as the Son of the living God. They did not understand from the beginning that he was God, did they? This understanding grew over time. The disciples came to this conclusion as they observed the Lord Jesus over a period of time, as they witnessed his miracles and they heard his words. Their spiritual eyes were gradually opened. And Peter's word brought commendation from the Lord. Peter was blessed because he had come to this correct conclusion about the person of Christ. And he was blessed because great blessing would be brought into his life. But the Lord added, however, that this was not a conclusion that Peter had determined on his own or someone else's insider ability, but rather, who had revealed this to him? God the Father, right? God the Father had revealed it to him. But then Jesus then made a statement about Peter's confession, which has led to some confusion in the church. Where he says, and I also say to you that, he says what? You Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, several answers have been proposed. One have said, well, well, Peter, Peter is the rock upon whom Christ would build his church. Some would say, well, the, the rock is Peter's confession of faith. That was the rock upon which Christ would build his church. But others have said, well, Jesus, Jesus himself is the rock upon which he will build his church. Now, which do you think is correct? Is it Peter, the rock upon whom the church is built? No. Is it Peter's confession of faith, the rock upon which Christ would build his church? How about Jesus himself is the rock upon which he will build? Yes. 
Absolutely. Well, I think it would help us then as we're trying to answer this to, first of all, take a look at the different words which are found in this passage. These words for Peter and rock in the original language, the original Greek language of the text here. Where we see Peter is Petros. You are Petros. And a Petros was a small stone, a small rock. You are Petros. I think this is a play on words Jesus is making. He says, you are Petros. You are a small stone. But on this Petra, I will build my church. You are Peter, a small stone. But on this foundation boulder, Petra, Petros and Petra, play on words, I will build my church. You're the small stone, but on the foundation boulder, I will build my church. Some of you who've uh, been enjoying some contemporary Christian music for a while might recognize that name Petra up there, right? You know where that came from. Now you know where it came from, why they call the band that. So Petra means rock, but it means like a foundation, boulder, right? So I think it seems best to say that Jesus was praising Peter for his accurate statement about him. And was introducing then his work of building the church on himself, on Jesus himself. But actually, I think the the question, how we might answer, I think Peter himself gives us the answer to what Jesus meant by that. I believe that answer is found in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Here, Peter is speaking, speaking to fellow believers, and he says, As you come to him, that is to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Saying what? You, the church, we are what? We are all little stones, small stones, living stones that are being built up on what? on the foundation, the cornerstone, who is Christ. And also Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 11. He says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. He's talking about establishing the church there in Corinth. And it says, But let each one take care how he builds upon it, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is who? Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. The church isn't built on Peter. It isn't built on someone's confession of faith. The church is built on Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. But, you know, we might ask a couple of other questions about this passage. He says... 
I say that you are Peter, you are Petros, and on this Petra rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. What does Jesus mean when he says the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church? Well, it has often been suggested that, well, that, that even the forces of Satan and hell itself cannot overcome the church. The gates of Hades will not prevail in this battle. The gates of Hades will not win. Satan will not win. The demons won't win. To which I said, well, that is true. Satan and the demons cannot overcome the church, Christ's church. Now, unfortunately, Satan does sometimes score some wins against the church, doesn't he? But is he going to overcome and defeat the church? No, he is not. Christ's church will prevail because Christ is the one who is guiding it and empowering it. So it is true that the forces of hell will not triumph over Christ's church. But I don't think that's what this verse means. So what does Jesus mean when he said, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church? Well, for the Jews, to refer to the gates of Hades, that term, the gates of Hades, referred to death, to physical death. So what I think Jesus was telling his disciples is that he was going to build his church and that even his death, even Jesus' death, would not prevent his work of building his church. Short, because shortly after this, he, begins, he speaks of his imminent death. And I think he was there for, he was anticipating his death and his victory over death through the resurrection. That his church would then begin to be built starting on the day of Pentecost and Peter and the other disciples would have important roles in it. You are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And even though I will die, it's not going to stop me. In fact, it was a crucial, necessary part, <laughs> you know, event in building the church, wasn't it? His sacrificial death and resurrection. So I will build my church, and even when I die, it will not prevent it. And he says, too, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What is he talking about there? Well, for the Jews, a key represented authority having authority over something. A trusted steward or a servant kept the keys to his master's possession and dispensed them accordingly. So Peter was told that he would possess the keys to the kingdom of heaven, that he would be able to bind and loose people what does that mean? Well, binding and loosing refers to forgiveness of sin or remaining bound in sin. So is Jesus saying to Peter, okay, Peter, I'm going to give you the ability to set people free from their sins or to keep them bound in sin. 
Is that, is that an authority Peter or any of us have? No, it isn't. But what does it mean then when he says, I will give you the keys to do this? It's not that Peter himself would be able to determine or forgive people, right? But rather, these were declarations that Peter and the other disciples would make as he received instruction from heaven, for that's where the true forgiveness of sin or the lack of forgiveness of sin comes from. It comes from heaven there. And Peter was simply carrying out, as a steward, he was carrying out God's directions. And so this privilege then, it's announcing or declaring the forgiveness of sins or the fact that sins are not forgiven. He isn't forgiving sin or not. God does that, right? But what was he to do and what do we in the church do? Do we forgive sins? or No, we don't forgive sins. God does. But what can we do? We can declare that. We can declare what God does. We're stewards. And the keys are the authority then to declare what God, what the master has said. So this privilege then of binding and loosing was seen in Peter's life as he had the privilege on the day of Pentecost to proclaim the gospel and announce to all those who responded in saving faith that their sins had been forgiven. He was able to do the same thing with the house of Cornelius. This same privilege then is given to all the disciples. We see that in John chapter 20. So in short then, the the binding and the loosing here refers to the privilege that believers have that are given to announce the forgiveness of sins for those who trust in Christ, as well as the solemn responsibility to declare the unforgiveness of sins for those who do not believe. The church doesn't forgive sins. God does. But the church declares what God does. I think, wow, this is a pretty high note. But we're not going to go out on a high note. (laughs) Because there's more that the disciples needed to hear. And there's more that we need to hear as well. It says, from that time, Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and be raised again the third day. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus called the people to himself and said to them all with his disciples also, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul and is himself destroyed or lost? 
Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he will reward each according to his works. And he said to them, But assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom and the kingdom of God present with power. We saw some gradually opened physical eyes, some gradually opened spiritual eyes, but nevertheless some partially closed spiritual eyes too here. Peter and the disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand. So Jesus explained that the gates of Hades, his death, was near. And it would be necessary for him to go to Jerusalem. There he would suffer many things. He would be killed, but he would rise from the dead on the third day. And Peter, hearing these words, he takes Jesus aside. He begins to rebuke him. Isn't that something? (laughs) Jesus rebuking or Peter rebuking Jesus. The disciple who had just been blessed by the master did not fully comprehend the master's plan. You know, we walk in the, in the blessing and the favor of God, and he says something to us, and we don't quite get it, do we? We don't always understand what God tells us right away. And Peter could not understand how Jesus could be the Messiah and yet die at the hands of the religious leaders. It made no sense. Can you sympathize with him a little bit in that? The Messiah, what? He's the, ru- he's the conquering king. What do you mean you're going to die? Peter was probably so shocked to hear Jesus speak of his death that he failed to hear him mention his resurrection, though. But Peter's rebuke, though, brings about a sharp rebuke from the Lord because Peter was playing the role of Satan here. And Jesus directly addresses Satan, who was seeking to use Peter as his instrument. Peter was trying to keep the Lord from dying, but that was the primary reason why Jesus came into the world. And trying to thwart the crucifixion, as Satan had tried to do, as we read in the wilderness temptations, resulted from not thinking about this from God's viewpoint. Peter was thinking of things from man's point of view, not God's. Peter wanted that earthly glory of the messianic kingdom. But God had another plan, a better plan, didn't he? Eternal glory, the eternal kingdom. Peter wanted Jesus to follow his plan, but the Lord declared that discipleship involves a cost. Discipleship, following Jesus, learning from Jesus, does not mean that one enjoys glory immediately. Oh, there's glory. But it isn't immediate. A person who would follow Jesus must deny himself and all of his ambitions. He must take up his cross and follow Jesus. Now, in the Roman Empire, a convicted criminal, when taken to be crucified, 
was forced to carry his own cross. And this showed publicly that he was then under and submissive to the rule that he had been opposing. And likewise, Jesus' disciples must demonstrate their submission to the one against whom they had rebelled. The path that Jesus and his followers would travel would be a road of sorrow and suffering. But in, but in losing one's life, one would find a better life. And if it were possible for an individual in preserving his own life to gain the whole world, but in the process lose his soul, of what value is that? Of what value is all the possessions and the glories of this world if you lose your eternal soul? True discipleship, then, involves following Christ and doing his will wherever that path might lead, including the path of suffering. So as Jesus continued to instruct his disciples, he speaks prophetically, then, of his second coming when he, the Son of Man, would return in his Father's glory with his angels. And at that time, then, the Lord would reward his servants for their faithfulness, And speaking of that return led him to state that, in fact, some of the disciples standing there with him would be permitted to view his coming kingdom before they experienced death. Now, how could that be? He said, some of you will see this glory and this power of the sons coming in glory and power. You will not see death before you see that. Now, how could that be? Because didn't all of the disciples die before the second coming? Yes, they did. So was Jesus mistaken about that? Did Jesus say, oops, he misspoke there. Is that what happened here? No. Jesus was not mistaken about that. He was not. And you're going to have to come back next week to hear how it is that Jesus was not mistaken about that. How many of you wonder, wait, could Jesus have been wrong? Could he? Be? He didn't. Well, but he said right here, some of you are going to see this before you die. Well, they all died before Jesus came again. We're still waiting. Was Jesus wrong? He wasn't. Come back next week to find out why he wasn't wrong. So we've been watching then as the, as the disciples' understanding about who Jesus is the nature of his mission, the cost of following him, all gradually dawned upon them as their eyes were gradually opened to these things. And it's true that all of us here are at different stages of our understanding of who Jesus is and the significance of his life, death, and resurrection. For some of us, Perhaps the reality of who Christ is and the critical importance of the gospel message of repentance from sin and faith in Christ is even now just beginning to dawn upon you. For many of us, though, we have heard and believed the gospel message, but we are on a lifelong journey of growth of gradually opening eyes to the fullness of Jesus Christ. 
our salvation, our redemption in Christ, in one sense is instant, but in another sense it is gradual. In one sense it is absolute and complete, and in another sense it is not yet finished. We speak of justification, sanctification, glorification. Many of you know these terms, but for some of us, they may be unfamiliar. Justification is what? It is that act of God where our sins are forgiven and we are declared holy and righteous in his sight. Not by our works, but what? By the righteousness of Christ himself. We are given his own righteousness as a gift. We're justified. Sanctification is that lifelong process of growing more and more to resemble the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, glorification. That is the culmination or the end point, the completion of our salvation, whereby God will resurrect our mortal bodies and give us bodies like the resurrected body of Christ, glorious, immortal, and fit for eternal life on the new earth. So I mentioned these three aspects of our redemption. One that is complete when we believe, justification. One that is in process, sanctification. And one that yet remains, glorification. But I want to focus on sanctification for just a moment and define it in this way then. Sanctification then, this is the lifelong process of growing in our knowledge about Christ, our knowledge of Christ, and our likeness to Christ. Our knowledge about Christ, we learn more about who Jesus is, what he is like, and the wonder of his gospel mission. We learn about that how? From where? From the word of God, from scripture. We learn about him, for example, he is God and he is human. He is the eternal, he's both, not one or the other. He is eternal God, the creator and our redeemer, but he is human, the second Adam, our representative before the Father. He is the author and the, and I'm so glad for this, he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's going to complete what he has started in us. He's going to make that faith perfect. And he is countless other wondrous things that we learn as we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. That's knowledge about Christ. Sanctification, part of that is knowledge increasing in our understanding about Christ. But it doesn't stop there. It's knowledge of Christ. What is the difference between knowledge about and knowledge of? Well, knowledge about is information. Knowledge of is what? Relationship, personal, intimate relationship with him. That you grow to know him deeply. It is walking with him daily, moment by moment. As one of his sheep, you hear his voice and you grow in your love for him. And in experiencing his love for you, that is knowledge of Christ. But then likeness to Christ, likeness to Christ. It's becoming more like Jesus in our thinking, in our attitudes, in our values, in our priorities. It's becoming more like Jesus in our character, becoming more like Jesus in our words, 
in our deeds and in our love. And all of these things, knowledge about Christ, knowledge of Christ, likeness to Christ, all of these things take time, don't they? And our eyes have to be gradually opened to these things. How many of you, your eyes are still being opened, right? I am. So just like the blind man whose eyes were slowly opened, and just like the disciples whose understanding of who Jesus was and the nature of his mission coming into the world grew over time, so too our understanding of Jesus, our knowledge of him, and our commitment to him grows over time as we seek to walk with him. So let us then endeavor to keep walking with him, to persevere, persevere through the hard times. You know, there was a very wise man in this church who said something to me one time that has stuck with me, and I've told you this before, I'm going to share it with you again. But in going through some, I was a young pastor. I'm not that young anymore. It's getting scary, isn't it? But uh, I was a young pastor. My first one, my first and only pastorate was here, by the way. And there were some challenges or difficulties. How many find that hard to believe? There were challenges and difficulties to deal with in the church, right? And he was encouraging me not to quit, not to give up, but to persevere. And he said, keep rowing, keep rowing, right? No matter what's going on, just keep rowing, keep moving, keep going, Right? I needed to do that as a pastor in a church. But we all need to do that in our walk with Christ, right? No matter what's going on, keep rowing. Keep moving forward. Keep rowing with Christ. So what? Well, I'd remind us, following Jesus is an ongoing journey to greater levels of understanding and life commitment. Take up your cross and follow me, he said. So I would challenge us all to grow in our knowledge about Christ. Jesus is the living word of God. Become a faithful student of the written word of God that you might learn more about the living word of God. Listen to the word of God as it is preached and taught. Read the word, study the word, meditate on the word, memorize the word, and very importantly, Obey the word. Grow in your knowledge about Christ. Grow in your knowledge of Christ. I've mentioned a a very good book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. He asks this question. I'll share it with you. He says, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. So we take those things that we're learning from the Word of God and we turn it into a matter for meditation, for chewing it over, for thinking about it prayerfully that leads us then to prayer and praise to God. For example, God is immutable. He never changes. Think about that. And what does that mean for you and me? The fact that God never... Aren't you glad God doesn't change? It means he's reliable, he's dependable, he's faithful, isn't he? He's not going to say one thing today and then something else tomorrow. 
Grow in your commitment then to Christ. You know, I'm still growing in my understanding of what it means to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus. Anybody else still learning about that? Right. But one day, our gradually opened eyes will be opened completely. And we will see Christ as he is. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Can you see clearly now? Has the rain gone? Can you see the obstacles in your way? But I assure you, though, it's going to be a bright, bright sun, spelled S-O-N, sunshining day. It's going to be a bright, bright, sun-shining day. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes to the wondrous truth of who you are, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and what you have done for us in giving your life taking our sins upon yourself, taking the punishment we were due, dying, being buried, and then rising again in victory, that we might share in your life, that we might have forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life, the hope of the resurrection, all of this received by faith, the gift of righteousness, the gift of life received by faith. Lord, you call us then now to take up our cross and to follow you, to deny ourselves, to say no to earthly ambitions and sinful desires, and to say yes to you and to follow you on that path. For what shall it profit us if we were to gain the whole world but lose our souls? But Lord, we know when we follow you, we gain our souls, we gain life forever and blessings untold forever. So, Lord, wherever we may be in this process of eyes being opened here, for the one who is perhaps just understanding for the first time who you really are and your claims upon his life or her life, we pray for that person that they will turn from sin and embrace life, eternal life in you, forgiveness and hope in you. For those of us who do know you, may we continue to persevere and to grow. Increase our knowledge about you, Lord that we might increase in our knowledge of you, that we might know you better, that we would honor you in every way. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.